Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Phil Casper. A proposed housing complex on an environmentally sensitive site cleared the Bloomington Plan Commission on Monday, despite a recommendation by the city's Environmental Commission not to approve it. Mecca Companies is proposing to build a multifamily apartment complex on eight acres on North Crescent Drive. At least 70% of the units will be dedicated to workforce housing. Commission member Nicholas Kappas called the location tricky. This is part of a habitat network that is drastically going away in this town. Um, We have to be a little bit more sensitive about our built environment. Kappas acknowledged the need for affordable housing in the city, but he says other locations are more suitable and wouldn't have the long-term environmental impact of Mecca's project. The wooded site contains a sinkhole, a creek, and changes in grade, all of which have to be accommodated in the site plan. Commission member Isabel Piedmont-Smith said she supported the findings of the Environmental Commission and said the development is not appropriate for an environmental sensitive area, even as affordable housing. I do um, support affordable housing, but I don't support it at the expense of the environment. I think there are longer term issues to consider here. Retired landscape architect and area resident Michael Kaczewski also spoke against the plan. Though Kaczewski expressed environmental concerns, it was his comment about the sociological impact of high-density housing that got the most attention. The sociologists have made very clear that there, will be, there is drug dealing in these kind of environments as, as well. So essentially, if you approve this, you're casting a blind eye to what professional sociologists have studied. They've been able to do the research. They've printed in peer-reviewed journals and books. This is simply not the place for 149 people crammed into what's sometimes referred to as creating a ghetto culture. Citing the Environmental Commission's recommendation, both Capus and Piedmont Smith voted against the plan. Commission members Heather Maritano, Jillian Kinsey, Carol Stewart Gullius, Andrew Seabor and Brad Whistler supported the project moving forward. The project still requires a vote by the city council. Whistler said it was a difficult decision. You know, I share a lot of the concerns about the, the environment here, uh, the impact on the environment. I share some of the concerns about what's, uh, what could uh, come of this development. Um, but I think that will largely be determined by some of the subtleties of the design and, and ultimately who ends up living here. Um, And and clearly, we have a demand for uh, this type of housing. Um, I think there's some additional benefit in that it's going to provide some connectivity in in an area that is is pretty isolated. And and if there's any concern, I think that's probably my, my largest concern here is just how isolated 
this site is from supporting services from employment and retail and um, and so forth. The approval of the preliminary site plan comes with 12 conditions. Among them are requirements to preserve many existing trees and to make 20% of the apartments available as market rate housing. The Bloomington Plan Commission is considering amendments to the City of Bloomington's 2040 Comprehensive Plan. The Commission spent more than four hours last week reviewing nearly 50 of the 172 amendments currently being proposed. One amendment addressed the City's goal to update its policies to address emerging forms of transportation like electric vehicles and their charging stations. The amendment calls for solar panels on electric vehicle charging stations in an effort to minimize the use of coal-based electricity. Commission members Nicholas Kappas and Isabel Piedmont-Smith supported the amendment. I think a lot of people have this mistaken idea that electric cars are really environmentally friendly when really when you plug them in to charge them, you're using coals you know, if you're living in Bloomington. So I think this is a good reminder to people that, you know, unless it's paired with solar or some other renewable energy, it's really not that great. Commission members speaking against the amendment said some charging station locations might not be able to accommodate solar panels. Planning Services Manager Scott Robinson says the city is already working towards a greater use of solar energy. And if this was a city initiative, um, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't be looking at alternative fuels. You know, I think if you look at coal, and at least as how we know coal is happening today, um, coal-based electricity probably doesn't have a very long life, is at least what they're anticipating with natural gas and other forms of electricity. Again, staff doesn't feel this isn't, necessar isn't necessary with this program. The amendment failed on a tie vote of four to four. The plan commission will continue to review and refine 46 more amendments in a special session on Monday, June 19th. Today is the 12th annual National Dump the Pump Day. In observance of the day, Bloomington Transit will be offering free rides for all fixed route buses and BT access services. Dump the Pump Day dates back to 2006 when gas prices were $3 per gallon. Though gas prices have gone down since, the National Day is still a way of informing the public about public transportation. According to a press release by Bloomington Transit, public transportation economically benefits the community. Every $1 invested in public transit results in approximately $4 in economic returns for the city. Route and schedule information is available at 336-RIDE or at bloomingtontransit.com. The levels of disinfectant byproducts in the city's water remain relatively low, according to monthly tests by the City of Bloomington. Exposure to these chemicals over many years can lead to problems with the liver, kidneys, or central nervous system. There can also be increased risk of cancer. Monthly testing began in January 2016 after relatively high levels of the byproducts were detected in the city's water. According to Utilities Director Vic Kelson, the department is now working on a comprehensive study of their treatment processes to further improve water quality. Numerous U.S. cities have pulled out of banks, especially Wells Fargo, that fund pipelines including the Dakota Access. Among those cities are Seattle, San Francisco, Albuquerque, Raleigh, and Philadelphia. The latest city to join the pack, New York, 
announced on May 31st that Mayor Bill de Blasio and Controller Scott Stringer will vote to stop their city from entering into new contracts with Wells Fargo. The officials will also seek to end the bank's role as book-running manager for the city's General Obligation and Transitional Finance Authority bond sales. Seattle led the movement when, in February, a coalition of activists persuaded the city council to pass an ordinance preventing the local government from doing business with or investing in Wells Fargo in the future. Seattle was deeply involved with the bank, moving some $3 billion through it every year. The same day as New York, the Berkeley, California City Council announced a plan to divest from Wells Fargo. Overfishing and reef decline are threatening Caribbean fisheries. Overfishing and the degradation of coral reefs across the Caribbean are pushing many fish, including food sources like tuna and groupers, towards extinction. That's according to a Red List report published by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. The report includes assessments of more than 1,300 marine bony shore fishes across 38 Caribbean countries and territories. Shore fishes include most fish species found near the shore. Around 5% of marine bony shore fishes in the Caribbean are threatened, the report shows, due to overfishing, invasive lionfish predation, and the degradation of coral reefs and estuaries. Coral reefs and estuaries, especially those with mangroves, provide habitats and feeding grounds for many species. Species threatened by overfishing are commonly associated with reef habitat. According to IUCN Director General Inger Anderson, this new report rings alarm bells for marine life across the Caribbean, hard hit by unsustainable fishing and the destruction of habitats. Anderson says it is essential that we use this new science and analysis to effectively conserve marine resources, which provide us with food, enhance our health, sustain the global economy, and protect us from the worst effects of climate change. In the Caribbean, the vulnerable red snapper and the endangered Atlantic bluefin tuna are among the threatened species targeted by fishermen. Reefs are flattening across much of the Caribbean, particularly affecting the elkhorn coral and staghorn coral. These branching corals are among the most important reef-building coral species in the Caribbean, and they are both classified as critically endangered. The release of the report coincides with the ongoing UN Ocean Conference in New York, where IUCN has been calling for urgent action on climate change and marine plastic pollution. And that's the news for this week for Eco Report on WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Phil Casper. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. In today's Eco Report feature, correspondent Bob Kissel brings us a report from a recent trip to Ecuador. This past February, I visited Ecuador, a country in South America the size of Colorado, for a two-week birdwatching tour. Towards the end of our tour, I had the opportunity to interview our guide, Willie Perez, about ecotourism in his native country of Ecuador. My name is William Perez, and I work as a tour guide for a company called Field Guides. And Field Guides is based in Texas, in Austin, and I have been working for them since 2011. Uh, the way how I started to work as a guide 
it became as a kind of a coincidence in the sense that I started to work with conservation first. And the project that I was involved, it was with spectacle bears. That is what put me in the way of nature. And since that, I started to follow a career in guiding. But something that really helped me to do it, it was because I grew up in a farm. Because my dad was a farmer in the western side of Ecuador. And I knew a little bit about nature, but completely in the different way how to show people. The reason how I started in birding, it was because I met a Peace Corps volunteer called Shannon Parsons. And this girl, she was making a, a checklist of the birds in the same reserve where I was working with spectacle bears. One time we were having lunch, you know, and Shannon was listening to something that she recorded. She, she didn't know what it was, but I knew the call. I knew more or less what the bird was, but I didn't know that birds, they had names. They, had, they were actually in books or anything like that. I started as a local guide in a reserve called Makipukuna in the northwest of Quito, and I did a lot of training courses, studying about nature, birds, a little bit of biology, you know, plants and all of that. And at the beginning it was basic, so I was guiding mostly in Spanish because I didn't speak any English at that time. My first goal it was to learn English. We had volunteers in the reserve, they were learning Spanish, and some of the local guys we were learning English. Your country of Ecuador is very biodiverse. It has a bird species list of over 1,600, and you have some very distinct territories. Can you talk about the biodiversity in your country because of those very distinct habitats? We always believe that Ecuador, in a sort of way, has a kind of a bless. <laughs> Literally, we got everything in terms of climate conditions and all of that. There are so many geographic facts, like the Andes Mountains, that divides the country from north to south. We are just looking located on the equator and obviously we are in the tropics and also we have some marine currents that help to change the weather and help to create these little pockets of biodiversity in Ecuador. Just to give you an idea, if you go north of the equator on the western side of the Andes, it's mostly wet and a lot of humidity and is a proper rainforest. But if you go south of the equator, the change is quite drastically because it turns into a kind of more desertic area. Reason for that is the influence of marine coral. But when you go to the Andes, because the highest point in Ecuador is 6,300 meters, so when you go from sea level all the way up to the highest mountain, which is Chimborazo, you have all these different habits and different temperatures that is, it makes the whole difference to have plants or a species that need different temperatures. In the eastern side, luckily we have also the Amazon Basin. It has all the moisture coming from the lowland rainforest. There is a lot of rain and it produces a lot of humidity and plants grow all year round. In a small amount of terrain, we have almost any kind of climb or conditions of weather. And additionally, you know, we have the Galapagos Island, which is another 
completely different world. There are some species there that you don't find anywhere else. How has your Ecuadorian government kind of protected the natural beauty and reserves of your country? Well, it has been kind of a process, I would say, since, since I started to work with conservation. Maybe government not doing much, but some international organizations join local organizations that were doing conservation. They have been trying to protect different habitats. It has been a process since I know, since 1998, 2000. We have to see the changes of conservation. And it has been going little by little. I am not saying that we we don't have forests being chopped down. You know, it's still happening. But now people are more conscious about that. The thing is because people started to be more open and trying to understand, you know, what's going on. And a lot of help has been from international organizations. Something that has been crucial, I will say also, is some of the universities in Ecuador open more biological studies, but also tourism that has been taking people in a different way. And ecotourism suddenly developed a bit. And that's the time when people realize that actually conservation is a good way and you can make some money with it. After we started to see that forest has a value just to look at it, it changed the whole mentality of people. Some of these organizations like Hokotoko, even Makipukuna, which is a big reserve in the northwest of Quito, when they started to protect the forest, local people thought, wow, the forest has some value. Because before that, the forest didn't have any value. The value for the land, it was a crop. Now people think twice when they want to chop the forest down because they can make maybe more money with the forest standing up than actually cutting it off. Just to give you an example, you know, today we went to visit Angel Pass and you can see how much money made just today using the forest that he has and the birds. So when people see that, but now we are also understand that forest is everything. Without forest, we are nothing. When we went to Angel's place today, and he's a, a private individual who essentially runs his own ecotourism business. Can, can you tell my listeners his story, which is very interesting? His name is Angel Paz. What he did is basically something that nobody else has done. And he decided, you know, to use his birds in the forest to make money instead of cutting the forest down and put crops and tree tomatoes and grass. In some ways, Angel has been very lucky, but he's also a very bright guy. He was part of a training process to become a local guy. And during this process, he was part of it. And one of these projects was the Cock of the Rock Lake. Suddenly he discovered that in his property, he has a cock of the rock leg. He started to, to take people to show the tourists these beautiful birds that are very unique, you know, in, in South America. Cock of the rock legs, they, they are in these very steep places, normally in canyons, and to get there is quite difficult. The trails were very muddy, according to what people started to complain. So when they were fixing the trails, in the way back of some of the tourists that they were visiting him, they saw this very unique bird called the giant Ampita. It looks like a, a coconut with legs. It was very impossible to see before, and some people even thought that they were extinct in Ecuador. These people were coming back. 
back from the Cockburg Lake, this bird was feeding the worms that were coming out of the soil that was dug out. One of the tourists, as a kind of a job, but maybe serious, he said to Angel, you know, forget about the Cockburg. They are everywhere. If you feed that bird, that will bring you money. And money is important. In conservation, I always say that it's like kind of a business because you need income. He started to feed the Anpitas with worms. So instead of people going to see the cock of the rock, most of the people or a lot of people went to see the giant Anpita. But suddenly he discovered that there were more Anpita. And as you know, today we saw four of these birds that normally we never saw them well before. He's there involved with the project. His family is working there too. And he, he has created this small industry, but also he employed some members of his family. He's a pioneer doing this, and a lot of people has copied him. In part two of WFHB's report from Ecuador, I asked Mr. Perez about the role of indigenous natives in the future of ecotourism in his homeland. For WFHB, this has been Bob Kissel reporting from Mindo, high in the Andes Mountains. ICA Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. It's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of south-central Indiana. This is In Nature. Which mammal has more teeth than any other in the state? If you answered opossum, you are correct. The Virginia opossum has 50 teeth, reflecting its prehistoric roots of 70 million years. The often maligned opossum is also known as being the only native marsupial in North America. Although rat-like in appearance, opossums are more closely related to kangaroos. An opossum gives birth to as many as 20 bean-sized, underdeveloped young who must climb to their mother's pouch. Those who survive the climb then compete for one of the mother's 13 teats, where they remain attached for two months before leaving the pouch. The opossum is an excellent tree climber due to the opposable toe on each of its back feet and its long, hairless, prehensile tail that can grip tree limbs to stabilize the animal as it climbs. Although slow and seemingly not so smart, the opossum, as a species, has done well. It can be found throughout most of Central America and the United States, having expanded into Canada over the last few decades. Opossums live in woodlands, farmland, and urban areas and prefer places near water. They are nocturnal and solitary. The opportunistic opossum will eat anything available, including insects, fruits, grains, garbage, and pet food. Its success can be attributed to its adaptability to human habitats. Opossums not only tolerate human settlements, they flourish and have a greater survival rate near them. City opossums on average weigh a third more than their country cousins. And those 50 teeth, when frightened, the opossum may hiss and bare its mouthful of teeth, yet they seldom bite. This small marsupial is really quite placid, preferring to avoid confrontation. You've been listening to In Nature. And now for our weekly events calendar. The Indiana Audubon Society is offering a birds and bison at Kankakee Sands field trip on Saturday, June 17th from 8 a.m. to noon. Kankakee Sands is located at 3294 U.S. 41 in Morocco, Indiana, and is considered a birders and wildflower enthusiast paradise. More than 7,000 acres host an amazing array of birds, wildflowers, plants, and animals that fills the prairie. 
The introduction of bison in 2016 is a great experiment on the disturbance of the land and how it will benefit the many grasslands birds. To participate, call 765-827-5109. There is a fee to participate for non-members. A lake hike is being offered at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, June 18th from 10 to 11.15 a.m. A guide will lead a one-mile trek around the Spring Mill Lake. Learn the natural and historical story of this reservoir. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center. A tree graveyard hike is being offered at the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, June 21st from 8 to 8.45 p.m. When trees die, are they really dead? Take a close look at a few tree graveyards and discover the abundant life that they make possible. Meet at the campground playground. The Indiana Forest Alliance's annual gathering, known as the Toast to the Trees 2017, will take place on Saturday, June 24th from 5 to 9 p.m. at 4830 Dove Hill Lane in Nashville, Indiana. An evening of music, food, drink, and inspiration are planned. Joan Maloof, the founder of the Old Growth Forest Network, will be the featured speaker. Maloof's goal is to get an old growth forest set aside in every county in the U.S., and she's taken a special interest in Indiana forest issues. To RSVP, call 317-602-3692 or email Paul Bryan at paul at indianaforestalliance.org. There is a charge to attend this event. The Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department is hosting an event on June 24th titled What Happened to Mr. Cardinal? Have you ever come across a bird that has been hurt or an ill bird? Autumn Brunel will lead this afternoon of role-playing in an environmental mystery where participants attend to discover what exactly happened to Mr. Cardinal. The event is on Saturday, June 24th from 1 to 2 p.m. in Bryan Park at the Woodlawn Shelter. Please register by June 16th at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Cole Stinson, and Sarah Vaughn. Bob Kissel produced the feature. Joe Crawford edited the script. Myself, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Jim Thrasher. Executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Phil Casper. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is 
earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.